can't go through another day of this. Don't worry. You won't have to. After we take care of Ferguson, we'll wrap you up in the bandages, and you'll take this little note I printed out on my new Dr. Sports medical diagnostic software, and you won't have to think about football again. Hey, I won't have to take phys ed either. Oh, by the way, how many cubic feet of helium do you think you need to lift 76 pounds? I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to the Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And we're changing up the formula again a little bit today. Amy, what, or should I say whom, are we discussing? We are discussing the eminent 90s girl, preeminent? I don't know. Maybe both. Maybe both. Melissa Joan Hart. Melissa Joan Hart, she that explained it all. We are going to explain all of our thoughts and feelings on her. Uh, We did this a few months ago with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. We did a sort of spotlight where we followed along with all of the major sitcoms that starred her. And that was really enriching to me like i i found that very satisfying to go into that with the idea of like yeah she's good she's funny and really come out of it with all these specific observations about what her specific sort of superpowers are and how she was able to project this air of credibility and sophistication and then undermine it so melissa joan hart i feel like is going to be a different journey right this is not going to be a natural born phenom of acting or comedic talent but i think on the other hand there's this sort of savvy on her part besides just the likability that has kept her you know sort of in our world for lo these many decades you know (laughs) well and i might even say like i might even disagree with your suggestion that she's not just this natural born talent, right? Because when you look at someone like Julia Louis-Dreyfus, she came into the public eye when she was just out of college, or I guess kind of in college, right? She was cast on SNL and started doing a bunch of improvisation and things. Young woman. Yes, she was a young woman. And so as a child star, Melissa Joan Hart, she honed her craft acting in teen movies. Those are the opportunities that are given to a woman who is 16 to 25 years old, where like, you know, not just teen movies, teen roles, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that what you're seeing there is sort of like the different opportunities you get when you come into the business at different times, and where you're able to kind of like learn your craft, hone your craft and capitalize on the parts that are coming to you. Yeah, this is very much a apples to oranges comparison. But that was the only other time we've done this so far. So I thought maybe we could really quickly do this almost 
Citizen Kane style, sort of starting at the end where, you know, one of the reasons why Melissa's on our minds now is because we're recording this around holiday time and her niche in the sort of present pop culture landscape is for for over a decade now, she's been doing these holiday movies, right? Right. She does both Lifetime and Hallmark movies. So she was one of the like OG into those yeah. made for TV movies from long time back. You know, she was doing made-for-TV movies. Sabrina the Teenage Witch was a Mm made-for-TV movie before it became a series. So she's been involved in those for, you know, a long time. And Holiday in Handcuffs is one of the early prior to the big, huge cultural rise of everybody talking about Hallmark movies and the format. We had ABC Family was doing ones just like that, and that was Holiday in Handcuffs. And now Melissa Joan Hart is both a director and a producer, as well as a star of Lifetime movies and Hallmark movies for the holidays. And you see in her IMDb or her Wikipedia page, those movies keep coming. They get a little more fringy, right? Some of the ones that she's done in the last few years, you can tell that there's a little bit of a conservative or religious bent. And even as TV movies go, they're just not at the center of the cultural conversation oh, anymore. Yeah. And I mean, that's I fine. kind of all of those, not all, but a lot of those Lifetime and Hallmark movies have that. You see a lot of former child stars yes. kind of going that route. Candace Cameron Bure, as one example, you've got um, Lacey Chabert, who's from Mean Girls and Party of Five. She is also, you know, heavily featured in those. But I would say the earlier and the relatively more mainstream ones, like you're talking about, about the holiday in handcuffs and a little bit later the very nutty princess where she hooks up with a nutcracker that that becomes <laughs> anthropomorphic they're fun you know sh- her thing in those early ones is it's not heavy and sentimental and religious it's got this touch of magic it's got a little bit of a freaky friday groundhog day kind of whimsy to it and she's really good at sort of uh, just kind of getting you on her side and coming across as this kind of like, well, nothing's going right for me. And, you know, my boyfriend just dumped me and I've got to order for 100 cupcakes that I have to make. You know, she just she inhabits those roles. Well, yes, uh, I think that has been her like later, you know, kind of latter day career going on now. You know, she's about our age. She's a couple years older than us. And so I think it's interesting that her like trajectory has gone from like cool girl to like lots of alpha bitch kind of teenage girl roles and then subverting that a little with Sabrina she wasn't like alpha bitch in that but that was you know a magical element kind of similar to Clarissa and then you know all of these guest spots she's like yes. cheerleader she's you know she's either like the um what's her name Tracy Tracy Flick. Flick. Yeah. Or she's, um, you know, like Little Miss Popular Cheerleader, Mean Girl, kind of a Regina George sort of thing. But now, as she's gotten older, she plays the I was the hot girl that things didn't work out for so well. Like right. she plays that in Melissa and Joey. Right. She now plays I'm the it overwhelmed of, mom. Yes. Or just hot girl who is like, like I, I was a hot girl. Now I've right. grown now up. I've and lost like, a step. Yeah. Things just aren't going as well for me as, as they used to, you know, kind of a thing. Right. So we haven't set our lineup yet. What are our shows that we're focusing well, on? Well, we've talked about most of them. So we have the pilot episodes of her four big sitcoms. Well, 
three big sitcoms and then the most recent one that she's done. So we've got Clarissa Explains It All. The pilot is called Revenge. And Sabrina the Teenage Witch pilot is called Pilot. Melissa and Joey, also called Pilot. And No Good Nick, which is a Netflix multi-cam sitcom that last try it was it was about one season it was one of those netflix kind of things that was in two parts yeah and that episode is called the catfish yeah so usually i leave most of the sort of research element to you but i was curious so i looked up uh, i did a little poking in melissa joan hart's biography and i have to say just looking at her parents background it reminded me of the part in austin powers when dr evil is in the therapy session and he's going oh my my mother was a french prostitute with webbed feet and my father would claim to have invented the question mark you know you look at her wikipedia page it goes (laughs) her dad was a carpenter shellfish purveyor oyster hatchery worker and entrepreneur (laughs) like i just find that very whimsical and then it goes on to say that her first television commercial was for a bathtub doll called splashy a bathtub doll called splashy never heard of it but her mom is a producer yes and she's one of these kids from long island who like the jonas brothers are from jersey and all a lot of these kids that you know grow up and get into theater and stuff she was close to the city so she had proximity at a young age to auditions yes, 100 stage kid this is through and through it yeah. says she made like 75 commercials before she was six years old or something yeah. she just she was one of those kids it's also very interesting if you're into horror movies in the 80s she was up for the role of jamie lloyd in halloween 4 and anyone who's into those kind of movies knows that's an iconic role that little girl danielle harris is really good And it is kind of fascinating to imagine what Halloween 4 and 5 would be with little Clarissa in that role. (laughs) In that role. Well, and she was also up for the part of 6 in Blossom. Yeah. And I I don't... I have this sort of vague recollection of some, you know, like 90s behind the scenes, you know, I love the 90s kind of documentary Nickelodeon early days or like the history of SNCC or something. I remember watching that and they like one of the producers or the creator of Clarissa Explains It All was saying that she was kind of waiting to decide on Clarissa to wait to see if she got this other role and then ultimately made the decision that because six was a supporting character and Clarissa was a lead character, she was going to go with Clarissa, even though Clarissa was on like this unknown network called Nickelodeon that basically just aired Double Dare and you can't do that on television. And she made that choice to not be on, you know, like an ABC sitcom. Which is funny because in this case, that is exactly the right choice. And she's been trading on that Clarissa notoriety ever since. But then there's other stories where some schmo opted to be the star of a sitcom instead of being on Friends because it's like, oh, I don't want to get lost in the ensemble. So he really, there's no blanket policy for no. making that choice. But no, in this case, luck. yeah, <laughs> in this case, it luck. really worked out. Nothing against Genovan Oy from Blossom, but clearly Clarissa has just. You know, it's just this iconic thing. Like, everybody knows it. And, you know, whether or not 
she would appreciate this statement. I feel like all of her subsequent career kind of owes itself to that. I think she would appreciate that statement. In fact, the last role she ever auditioned for was Clarissa. Every role she's had since then has been offer only or something her mom produced. Right. And we can talk about that as we get into it, that for better or worse, she stays at the center of what she does. And of course, like you mentioned, the little miscellaneous guest stars, little fun things, but she has this entrepreneurial attitude and she's one of the producers of some of the sitcoms. And so, yeah, she kept that savvy of like, I'm not going to throw myself at the mercy of casting directors and whatnot. I'm going to sort of take charge of my own fate. But anyway, even if that means I'm going to not become the next Jennifer Aniston or the next whoever, I'm going to do my thing and 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 be in my lane. But she also, you know, she's one of few Hollywood stars that has a successful marriage and has like made it through the child stardom relatively. Exactly. Relatively little drama. But so let's rewind back to Clarissa. Mm -hmm. This is what, 1990? So it starts in March 1991. That makes us. 11 yes i can remember this coming out this was part of that whole expansion of nickelodeon you had snick you had the nicktoons i don't remember exactly how it works out year by year but late 80s early 90s there was a big push to you know we're not just going to be you can't do that on television and you know, the Count Ducula reruns from the BBC. You know, we're going to have lots of new programming. We're going to try to go after older kids, teenagers. And Clarissa was a big part of that. And I don't know that this was ever like my favorite thing, but I definitely got into this. And, you know, I I tuned in. I liked it. Oh, I 100% got into this. And so this and Blossom... I mean, they're open. Very of, similar. Like yeah. the just, you know, either Maya Bialik or Melissa Joan Hart right there in the center of the screen wearing sort of like wacky clothes. Dancing and fashion. And big for both of them. Absolutely. Doing silly, you know, kind of interacting with the family, whatever it was. With Blossom, it's a lot more dancing. With Melissa Joan Hart and, and Clarissa, it was like that first season, the open was she was much younger and she was like changing clothes a bunch. Yeah. And then later on, she had that like iconic high boots purple fuchsia kind of tight definitely and the and like the short skirt and kind of the crop top that didn't show her belly button that was like oh my god i want to be her when i grow up i want to go to spiral now and get yeah. those clothes it made me feel weird that this episode we watched was showing her bare stomach oh but- well and that's so interesting because i remember when they made that switch yeah. being like oh she's like more grown up now wow look at her boobs because like i definitely didn't have boobs when i was 12 so i was like wow she's got boobs oh she's so pretty <laughs> yeah and this was the first time i remember ever noticing as a you know young teenager that was not at all interested in fashion. This was the first time I noticed that she changed clothes between every scene, kind of like how we talk about Jamie and Charles in Charge, that this was part of the makeup of the show was that she was always going to be debuting some new fashion thing every time you saw her. So the episode begins, we've talked about this with Saved by the Bell, with Parker Lewis. You see the Ferris Bueller influence, right? You see it exactly open up on her direct address to the camera saying, hi, I'm Clarissa. Let me tell you about what my show is going to be. Yeah, this is my life. Here are all the people in my family that matter. Oh, yeah, by the way, 
she introduces everybody and then she's like, oh yeah, by the way, and my stupid brother Ferg face. Yeah. So not only was this like, you know, girl a couple years older than me pretending to be about my age and just like super cool and super smart and super tech savvy and having this like awesome best friend who could just like come in the window seated window. Like Mm -hmm. that's so cool. I totally want that. She also had a squirrely little redheaded brother just like me. Well, that's that was what I wrote down that when you're doing entertainment for kids, the one evergreen universal topic is your siblings, right? Don't you hate your siblings? Even though there's lots of kids that don't have siblings. I just know even to this day, I do animation work for children's musicians. And so many of the songs are, ah, my bratty brother. Ah, What am I going (laughs) to do about my big sister? So yes, that's a big topic from the start. And yeah, she, she gives this address and right away, it feels awkward to me. And it's not it's not anyone's fault. I think it's a little bit of her just not being the most seasoned performer and this this whole, you know, what they're asking of her being quite challenging. And the whole look at this show, we talk about how some sitcoms look a little flashier than others and are shot on film versus video. This looks kind of like the cheap half-inch video. There's no, like music or sound design like you you really feel the silence when she's talking there's just a certain stilted awkwardness to the whole presentation that it isn't necessarily bad i would say if nothing else it's just dated it just reminds me early 90s yeah it, it does one of the things that i noticed in terms of like if we're just kind of thinking about like the sets and the backgrounds and whatever i had never really looked, I think, that closely at Clarissa's room before. And I was so fascinated by the choices of, like, it's very clearly, like, kid-hand-done stuff. Mm -hmm. She's got her trunk and her desk have, like, she just decided to paint them one day. And the things are not lined up perfectly. You know what I mean? Like, there's little triangles on the trunk. And you can see where they just haven't been measured out right. And on the wall, she tried to turn, like, the ugly flower wallpaper that her mom had put up into um, sort of like a black and white checkered floor. And, of course, it's not measured. And only part of it's done. And it's like the squares are all off. Some of them are rectangles and dripping and stuff. And it was really interesting to just sort of see that and allow that kind of messiness to be there because the stuff she has hanging on her wall behind her bed is so curated. There's this huge, there might be giants. And so, yeah, it was just really interesting to kind of see that and look at it now as like a time capsule. I I really appreciated like all the efforts that that art design team went through to make it look like a kid had kind of taken over ownership of their own bedroom. Well, and they continue that in this motif of Clarissa is very tech savvy. And so not only can she do computer stuff that we're going to see a little later, there's this recurring theme of she has these over her shoulder graphics that pop up. And it's that same thing, the Comic Sans fonts that we all hate. There are lots of, you know, everything looks like it's kind of drawn or scribbled by a kid. And it just makes perfect sense for that Nickelodeon sensibility where yeah. they almost want you to think that there's like a 12-year-old kid behind the camera directing the episode. You know, it yeah. has this for kids, by kids kind of feeling and also this very modern feeling, which of course makes it feel very dated now. 
because all of those graphics that she's always sort of <laughs> relying on. It's like the 32-bit. <laughs> yeah, and there's there's just this sense of like, isn't it cool that we can do this? You know, yeah. isn't it cool that we can make little graphics pop up next to her head and stuff? And it is fun, but again, very 1991. But I wonder if we watched an episode from like late season two, if a lot of that sort of awkwardness would disappear. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I think we should keep that in mind sort of across the board because we've got, again, a kid, however old she is doing this. I mean, like we talked about, she's had a lot of acting experience, but what she's being asked to do here is hard. This would be hard for anybody to talk directly to the camera for three or four minutes. And then, yeah, the whole studio is young and sort of fledgling and all of this uh is is being sort of tried out for the first time so let's get into this episode right what is this about so this episode is about revenge as the title tells us ferguson the little brother has stolen clarissa's training bra and taken it to school for show and tell and her parents don't know and ferguson doesn't know that clarissa knows so clarissa is plotting revenge she gets her best friend sam to bring over a straight jacket that he has gotten from somewhere mm-hmm. and she is blowing up these giant helium balloons that she's going to attach to the back of the straitjacket once she gets Ferguson in it and send him sailing away to his death, hopefully. So again, the sort of Ferris Bueller, Zach Morris modus operandi in the sense that she loves to have plans, right? right? This is a big thing for Clarissa is let me tell you my plan. Let me make up a plan on my computer. Now, Sam... I put down that he's dressed like Joey in the one where nobody's ready when he puts on all of Chandler's clothes. (laughs) That's what this kid looks like. He just has, it's like he's wearing every article of clothing that he owns at the same time. Oh, Uh, that's funny. He comes into the window, like you said, just like Vinny Del Pino and a handful of other, you know, pop culture characters over the years. I like that he commits to it so much that when he gets injured later on, she'll hoist him up by a pulley system into the window. Right. Like he cannot come through the door. There is nothing that he can do. So one of the fun behind the scenes nuggets that I read about while I was doing the research for this episode is that that is a a first floor set. Mm. So that window ledge is only about three feet off the ground. And he had to lay on his stomach and like, just use his hands up the ladder and then lay there. And then (laughs) like pull himself up. Well, that makes sense. It's safer, even if it's a little awkward, but yeah. So Sam introduces his story, right? Cause he's got a whole thing that his dad, first of all, his dad is a single sports writer. So I just got it into my head canon that his dad is Oscar Madison. I was from, just going to say, I bet you uh, think the it's odd, odd couple. couple. <laughs> yeah. So this is now in the odd couple extended universe. But yeah, he can see the audience too, by the way. I noticed the two of them will sit on the bed and sort of talk to each other and the audience. Right. Um, so he has the same sort of clairvoyance as she does. His whole thing is his dad wants him to play football and he doesn't want to, basically. Right. And so Clarissa is going to have a plan for him. And, you know, she's got her whole thing with the, the training bra and the brother. Bras, I feel like, were a big source of humor for this kind of tween 
audience at this time. I used to always notice how in Saved by the Bell, they would try to say the word underwear at least once per episode because kids just (laughs) thought that was funny and it was a little transgressive, but not really. And it's sort of the same thing that it's like, we're not going to touch anything to do with actual sexuality, but we can show a little kid waving around a bra and kids will think that's funny. Right. And especially a training bra, right? Like that's when young girls tend to need a training bra is when they're still not ready to like admit that they need a bra yet like it's still kind of embarrassing so that is a perfect like it definitely speaks to the girls you know what i mean like i a hundred percent was would cringe and be like oh no oh my gosh i couldn't imagine if my brother did that to me so she's got plans for everything she's showing her plan for Ferguson to Sam on her computer, but it's less a plan than a video game, right? Her demonstration that she shows for Sam is just a full-on, like, arcade-style side-scroller video game. Well, it's her her simulation of what's going to happen. Right, like, we can practice on this video game before we try it in real life. No, this is, it's it's her presentation to the board of this is how I'm going to rid my brother from the world. (laughs) Right, but yes, this is exactly the sort of Nickelodeon logic that I love. Like, you got to think it takes hundreds of hours to program this demonstration versus like the five minutes it takes to actually <laughs> like shove your brother in the closet or whatever the plan is. But that's the fun of the plan, right? Like yeah. that. And that's kind of so this B plot of uh, well, in this one, it's not really a B plot. It's like the whole plot. But for m- most of the series, it becomes this sort of ongoing Yes. B-plot that she's always got some plan to rid the world of Fer- uh, Ferguson because he's such a disease. Yeah, he's almost like a little, they don't really get into it in too much detail, but he's almost like a little Alex P. Keaton, He 100% right? is a little Like a Alex little, I'm proper. And, like, and they a don't... little mini Republican who like cares about capitalism. His parents are both hippies. The yeah. dad is an architect, just like the mom from Family Ties is an architect. Well, and they have all the 90s jokes about the mom is making tofu pancakes. That's right, right. All that kind She's of stuff. She's very crunchy. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess she she enacts her plan vis-a-vis Ferguson by tricking him to go into the closet. Right. So Ferguson has kind of gotten out of hanging out with his parents on the weekend by lying and saying he was going to be watching some nature National Geographic documentary. And so they've gone off to do their weekend things. And he's home alone, except for with Clarissa and he's eating Oreos and whipped cream, which who knows how those got into the house, but he's pretty crafty and so is his sister. So Sam is waiting outside with all the balloons and he's holding onto the door handle to keep him from flying away. And she convinces Ferguson that the bike that he has asked for, but his parents have said no to is actually going to come for his birthday and they've hidden it in the hall closet. And so she traps him in the hall closet and then goes in after him and gets him in the... Which I had to ask, like, why does he need to be in the closet in order to wrangle him and get the straitjacket on So him. we don't see bad <laughs> yeah. physical acting. It's the exactly. same thing that happened in Hannah Montana. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate them doing that, taking him into the closet, then just doing a cut or a little right. flippy effect. So she gets him and then she goes over to the door to open the door to get Sam to come in with the balloons and she takes 
the handhold, you know, he's holding on to the door. So as soon as the door opens, he's not holding on to anything except the balloons anymore. And he goes up, up and away with the balloons instead of Ferguson and then crash lands and hurts his arm and neck. And that's why we get the pulley system to get him in the window later on. Right. And that was the sort of irony of her plan for Sam, right? Because she initially wanted him to basically fake an injury to get out of football. And then she ended up creating a situation where he actually got injured. And so, you know, she ended up achieving her goal, which was now you don't have to play football and you also don't have to disappoint your dad. So look, I'll say again, allowing for all of the caveats that we talked about, it starts a little shaky for me (laughs) in terms of Melissa Joan Hart's command of the... No, look, Matthew Broderick in his early 20s, she is not, but she's also, you know, 15. Yeah, and I don't think it necessarily works against her appeal in the show, right? Because if she's meant to be, you know, sort of what what we all are, what we all want to be as these kids watching it, she fits that. And oh, yeah, 100. When, when she's in, when she and Sam are talking to each other and they both have that same sort of stiffness, I'm going like, well, I can be a cynic and say this is like the blind leading the blind Aww. and neither of them are any good. <laughs> or I could kind of look at it as glass half full and say like, no, they're kind of both on the same page yes. and they're sort of, you know, young budding acting skills are like kind of a good match for each other. Yeah. I think they're, I think they're cute. I think, look, I just remember loving this show. And I think you're absolutely right. It was, it's not meant for adults to be like, oh, let's critique the acting. No, absolutely not. And it's the pilot. So early days, right? That's, that's kind of where we are. But what I thought was really good about this was that even though, you know, she's not Matthew Broderick and and Ferris Bueller, when she has to deliver these long kind of monologues that she has to do, she is interesting, right? Yeah. Yes, there's some awkwardness, 100%, but she is interesting and there's something there, which is why, like I said, if I think if we watched a later episode, we'd see a lot of that kind of smooth out and it would be more fun. The other thing that struck me when watching this is like, this is so much like iCarly. Mm-hmm. Just because of, like, the tech stuff and because of how cool she is and, like, Punky Brewster even a little bit. Like, this is if Punky grew up. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, yeah, I just really thought that was – it was a lot of fun to go back to it as, you know, being a fan when I was a kid. Yeah. And you see why this was so fascinating to us. And, again, turning the clock back to a time when there wasn't, you know – 25 different channels all devoted to kids entertainment or all this crap on streaming to sift through and the idea of having this girl at this particular age and with this particular sort of vibe of the show was kind of a new thing and so i think she carved out that niche and that is a big part of why we still remember her you know 30 years later well she was the first female lead of a cable television show i mean Mm. there weren't a lot of cable television shows up at that time but that is like the distinction of honor you know what i mean like she is this so that we have wizards of waverly place yeah and you know all of these other things that have come since then yeah that's totally true all right so let's move on to sabrina the teenage witch 
Sabrina the Teenage Witch. We're watching the pilot. This is first aired September 27th, 1996. So five years or so later from the beginning of Clarissa. So Clarissa ran for a few years, so it must have been a pretty quick handoff. Then. Yeah, it was. I think it was just like one season. Um, Clarissa ended in like 95, 94, and then um, she went and got this kind of shortly thereafter because, like I said before, the movie of Sabrina the Teenage Witch came before this TV show aired. Okay. So, yeah, I've actually watched quite a lot of this show on early morning reruns in the you know, 2010s, I think. This would come on, you know, TBS or ABC or whatever in the mornings around 7 a.m. when I used to kind of work at my computer for like 45 minutes before I would head off to work. And they would cycle through the different shows. So for a while it was Sister, Sister, maybe Boy Meets World. And for a long time it was Sabrina. And so I would have it on as a sort of innocuous background stuff. So I have actually seen quite a lot of it. But this was something that came out, you know, after we had outgrown this kind of stuff. This was not something I ever really sought out. Right. My this was sort it. of along the same time as Boy Meets World. It kind of, I think it started before Boy Meets World, but yeah. then ended up, you know, they were, they guest starred on each other's shows and stuff. They were uh -huh. in that same kind of world, ABC world. Yeah. And Sabrina, the Teenage Witch, of course, is an Archie Comics character. Uh, I Which guess I never knew that until just recently when the reboots came yes. out and like they were doing the like gritty reboot of Archie uh -huh. called Riverdale and sure. Sabrina and they were like oh yeah it's all set in the same Archie universe the same town and I was like I'm sorry what 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 now <laughs> Yeah, no, she was a character from, from way back when. I don't think that really has much bearing on the way the sitcom plays out. But yeah, this is one of those sort of pre-CGI special effects type things. Not that CGI didn't exist in the world, but this is full of the goofy little in-camera effects and little puppeteering and things like that that kind of make the show fun and quaint, especially now, but it's probably all the more reason why, you know, when I was 17 or whatever, when this was coming out, it was not my thing. Yeah, I, this wasn't really the one that I watched. I have seen bunches of it, like you, in reruns, just because it was one of those things that would be on for me, not at seven o'clock in the morning, because I was generally already at work, but back in the afternoons um, after school, yeah. uh, that would be something like, oh, I'm making dinner and I would see and it would just be on. So this episode begins and thus beginning the series with Sabrina asleep, levitating her two aunts, Zelda and Hilda are watching her with sort of pride, like, oh, she's finally reached that age where this stuff is going to happen. So I want to ask right off the bat, is this, you know, in the tradition of Carrie, is this magic as metaphor for menstruation and oh, puberty gosh. and reaching womanhood and all of that? I mean, maybe, but that would have had to have been like the Archie Comics idea yeah. because it doesn't feel like that in this show it did for me in that first scene when they were watching her and going like oh i remember what it was like for me and just some of the language that they were using these two women watching this young woman you know experience this new thing it immediately made me think that but then again, that's how all this lore works. It comes about when you go through puberty and stuff. So there's a little bit of a chicken and the egg type Yeah, thing. I mean, coming of age stories happen right. when you're coming of age kind of a thing. Yeah. One of the things I did notice, though, is that she's she's 16, but they say she's starting her first day 
at a new school or a first day well, at high school. And so I was just a little, I was like, well, if she's 16, she wouldn't be a freshman. So maybe she's moved. I think that's it. I think she's been sent to live with her aunts. We get some of this backstory later with this very specific, oh, you can't see your mother for two years within She'll becoming a witch and all that. She'll turn into a ball of wax. So yeah, I think we're supposed to understand that she's sort of a transplant and she's kind of starting a new life here with her aunts. And yeah, the crux of this episode is going to be her aunts trying to convince her that she's a witch. Which... And her dad can't raise her because he's been sent to the other realm. Yes. Okay. And he now lives as a picture in a book, much like a character in a Harry Potter uh, effect. But yeah, it begins with the aunt presenting her a little witch cauldron for her birthday as this sort of like... I don't know, cute way of telling her that you're a witch. Right. And she's like, thanks. Um, I guess I can put little flowers in it or something. And they're like, it's a cauldron. And it's funny because they do the thing in these scenes of of like the least amount of communication, yes. just like smiling at her and waiting for her to just know she's a witch, even though she has no idea and would have no idea. So then they explain, they're like, you're a witch. And um, and she's like, okay, haha. Like, <laughs> Yeah, she just straight up doesn't believe them. And they just kind of send her off to school, like just, well, okay, you'll see. And all this time- And be careful not to point at things with any intention, is right. what they say. <laughs> because the first few instances of magic that we see are these inadvertent things that she herself doesn't notice. We right. see little, you know, moments moments where she'll say, oh, I wish it wasn't raining or whatever it is. I don't even remember the specifics. As she's starting to go through her day and go to school and everything, I realized this is not the kind of show production-wise that I thought it was. I was thinking of this as a multicam sitcom, but as I'm watching it, it becomes clear this is much more like square pegs. I think this is a single camera productions shot like a movie in houses or schools or sets or whatever it is but you can see clearly whether it's you know a mirror in the bathroom or angles in the house that they are in these places and moving the camera like they would in in a movie and then adding these fake laughs and these other things to sort of make it feel more like a traditional sitcom so kind of like spider-man she she finally understands her powers when she's confronting a bully, right? She right. has a face-off in the cafeteria with Libby, the mean girl, and everything kind of comes out. Right. So prior to that happening, the big happening in the cafeteria, Sabrina has gone into the bathroom and mean girl Libby and her two friends are in there and... They're being mean to to Sabrina and she goes to leave and she makes another comment and she, you know, turns around and points at her and is like, no, you need to. And then Sabrina flicks something, right? And it bewitches Libby's lipstick and she draws all over her face. But Sabrina's gone by then, doesn't really notice that that has happened. That, But then she does at some point in the day notice that she has made something happen because when she goes home that night, she says to her aunts, oh, I am a witch. Okay, I like this is what happened, you know. So they teach her how to like turn an orange into an apple right. and she keeps turning them into pineapples. This is just like Harry Potter. You begin with trans transfiguration, right? right? That's your basic magic. So she's trying to 
to do this spell of turning an orange into an apple. She has thousands of pineapples all over the house. It's time for her to go to school the next day. Libby starts shit up with her in the cafeteria and she points at her to tell her to like leave her alone or whatever and whoops turns her into a pineapple so she picks up the pineapple runs out of the cafeteria goes home and is like you have to help me and so the ants put the pineapple on the table and are like okay and change her back into libby and then there's a person sitting in their kitchen and she's like what did you do to me you're a total freak and runs out so then sabrina's like oh my gosh everybody's gonna know i'm a witch this crazy girl's gonna tell everybody i have to do something i have to turn back time which now i'm realizing is the same exact story as that last spider-man movie no way home that one was all about they found out his secret identity now he needs to go to Doctor Strange and yeah, reverse time or maybe in that one they just wanted to cast a spell to make people forget but in any case, yeah, she wants them It's almost like the Archie and the Marvel comics were sort of like doing stories (laughs) around the same time Uh, So she wants them to turn back time and Aunt Hilda's advice is toughen up, right? We can't do that or rather, first they say, well you have to uh, request that from this body, right? This sort of like board of, of magic authority, which yeah, is going like to be... Yeah, like the re- witch's council or yes, something. Yes, that's going to be a recurring thing in the show. It's going to be one of many ways that they get in all kinds of fun celebrity cameos, starting right. here with Penn and & Teller and Debbie Harry from Blondie. Correct. They're the, they're the witch council. Yes, and so she goes to them and she asks if she can have a time reverse spell be cast and they say no. So she's all disheartened and she has to then go to face the music and go to school the next day. As she's leaving for school, apparently Hilda used to date Penn. Uh-huh. And so she goes into the other realm to confront him and get him to change his mind. And I don't know if I liked this plot development because Aunt Hilda's advice to Sabrina, like I said, is toughen up. She's basically saying to her, like, you can't just resort to magic, you know, especially on the order of reversing time, erasing people's memories, etc. On your first day as a witch because you screwed up, like you have to you know, deal with these things like a real person. Right. You have to face the consequences of your actions and learn to control your powers. Right. And so Sabrina seems to accept that. And they have a whole back and forth where Sabrina says, it's going to be hard. They're going to laugh at me. I'm going to be disliked. And Aunt Hilda, you know, remains steadfast and says, hey, tough. That's, That's part of being young, whatever. And to me, that is exactly the right message to send in this ABC family show for younger people. And then when she gets to school, she realizes it's Groundhog's Day and everything has been reversed and reset. And now she's back to the previous morning and it's a Das Ex Machina. They solved the problem for her with magic, which I thought was kind of a shaky resolution. Yeah. and that, But she gets to like have a do-over yeah. on her mistake and make different decisions, right? So we see her not be mean and nasty or anything. We just kind of see her turn the drink around. Um, Libby goes to spill grape soda on her on purpose, and she just turns it around and makes it spill back on Libby. Yeah, 
Which is all fine. And of course, she has some other benefits, like she asks out Harvey, right. her, you know, her crush before Libby has a chance to invite him to her party and all that. I just thought I preferred the message of magic is a last resort, solve your problems for yourself to like, we're going to go and use our connections because I used to sleep with Penn Jillette to reverse <laughs> time and fix your mistakes for you. No, it's true. Um, but in terms of the acting, yeah. I think we don't get fourth wall breaking in this, but we definitely have the, you know, fanciful elements that are different but similar to what we saw in Clarissa. Melissa Joan Hart, acting wise, we definitely see the the journey from kind of precocious kid to young woman. She now She's a much better actress. Yes, she's especially, like we said, given that we were watching the very first episode of Clarissa, there is a world of difference. What I would say is you see a comfort, a confidence, and a charisma that is, you know, was not totally in place in Clarissa episode one. Now we see, oh, sure, she's fun to watch and yeah. very comfortable. Absolutely. I think what always interests me about this is how much like she and Maya Bialik should do just yeah. some sort of like Golden Girls kind of throwback show, right? Because they're I would so not rule that out. similar in these ways. They've had these vehicles where they're the, like the cool it girl, young women. And I just think it yeah. would be so funny. Maya has that Call Me Cat show now. Yes. There is a sense, and I don't mean this pejoratively, but both of them are like... We're going to hang on to our presence in the pop culture television world by, you know, the skin of our teeth if we have to. Like, it is hard <laughs> to stay relevant in this world. Yes. And it takes a lot of effort and skill. And it doesn't, you know, not everything works out. But uh, yeah, both of them sort of have that grit to yeah. sort of stay in our minds. Absolutely. Anyway, I just, I think that would be, if I would watch the hell out of that show yeah. uh, with the two of them. I'm trying to think if there's another one, that another woman we can get in there from that like same sort of time I mean, frame. Yeah, she was a little bit earlier and had a different career path, but Sarah Jessica Parker was the one that I was comparing Clarissa to. Oh, was like, yeah. That's your A-list, best-case scenario trajectory. Uh -huh. I see, I see. Oh, you know, though, now that you've said that, what um, the one that came to mind, and you could get you could get somebody like Soleimoon Fry or even Alyssa Milano, who didn't, like, have a oh. young kid, like, I'm the lead of the show kind of a thing. Yeah, she was young when that started. Sure, but she... What, no. Not in the same way that Punky and, no, and she Blossom, wasn't the exactly, had this like, you know, kind of feminist yeah, She could be the neighbor. Of, yeah, right. She could be the neighbor um, with the Facts of Life girls or something. But yeah, that would be yeah. wouldn't that Golden would be Girls, the next generation. Show. Bialik, Joan Hart. Yeah. Soleil <laughs> Fry. middle and last name. I love it. All right. Moving on to Melissa and Joey. Season one, episode one. Pilot. Yep. So this begins with the words that we love to hear. Melissa and Joey is filmed before a live studio audience. You're damn right. right. This is the first 
time Melissa had ever worked on a sitcom in front of a live studio audience. Her two other shows did not. And so she gave some interviews talking about how that was initially sort of disconcerting. Sure. So this is a little bit later. So, you know, if we talked about how there was kind of a seamless handoff from Clarissa to Sabrina, and who knows what's going on behind the scenes, but it's not hard to imagine that, yeah, young people want more Melissa Joan Hart, slaughter into Sabrina. Perfect. This one is 2010, so a little bit later. We see right off the bat executive producer Melissa Joan Hart, executive producer Joey Lawrence. And so maybe I'm just making up this narrative in my mind. This seems more like, okay, how can we, you know, Melissa and Joey, maintain our position in the public eye and and keep this going. Right. You know? So in the intervening years, she had done a lot of those ABC family holiday movies and TV movies that so we talked about. So this is post-Holiday in Handcuffs. It is definitely post My Fake Fiance, okay. where she and Joey Lawrence starred together. Gotcha. And that was one of these ABC family made-for-TV movies. And they had such a good time filming it together. They've known each other since they were five he was on Give Me a Break. She was on, you know, her TV shows and doing guest spots and TV shows and stuff. And so they've been, you know, child star friends for a long, long time. Well, he and or the two of them did that movie and said, we should do a show together. And so they went to the network with the idea. They loved it. Fun fact Melissa and Joey is the name of the show, and Mel and Joe are their characters' names. And Joe stands for Joseph, just like Joey stands for Joseph, right? But Mel, Burke, stands for Melanie, not Melissa. That is very interesting, but it's funny to think if I did want to be an asshole about it to be like, well, if I'm saying she's not the best actor, the fact that her idea of like, stretching for the role is well this character's name is melinda not melissa <laughs> like kind melanie of funny. no i don't think it was her i just thought that was really funny because i you know she goes by mel throughout the show and yeah. he goes by joe throughout i assumed the show. it was just the thing of naming the characters after the after i did too and then ran like again was looking and i probably did notice this during the run of the show because they did say it a few times towards the end of the series but i was like melanie that just is so weird. <laughs> yeah, no, I wonder why they did that. But okay, in terms of like tracking her as an actor, I feel like she's hit her stride now. We are now seeing that like 100% focused kind of, you know, alpha, A-type female character that is, you know, kind of smooth sailing and and is exactly the type of woman we all want to be because she's a boss ass bitch and then just underneath the surface the legs are pumping 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 and it's kind of all about to fall off the wheels and fall apart similarly to our friend um julia louis dreyfus in veep yeah I agree with that. And in many of the other sitcoms she's done. <laughs> yeah, I just, I sort of hasten to add, for me, it's not like a flattering comparison, Melissa Joan Hart to Julia Louis-Dreyfus, but you're right. There is a little bit of that same energy. I also... It's, it's that the characters are written similarly. I know. And but, this is like, this is how you're allowed to be a boss-ass bitch 
as a woman on TV, you also have to be kind of falling apart, oops, at the same time. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that to me, it's like Julia Louis-Dreyfus is like the Michael Jordan of that. And Melissa Joan Hart is like Isaiah Thomas or something. Like Who's still, Isaiah Thomas? A very good basketball player who isn't quite <laughs> Michael Jordan. That's what I'm saying. Um, the cold open, right, so the immediate first moments of the show contain references to drinking, and she says the word hell, as in, like, you know, what the hell is he saying or something? And I just noticed that in terms of, like, still ABC Family, right? Yes. But we need to distinguish, like, we're a little more grown up now. Yes. This isn't Clarissa. This isn't Nickelodeon. We can acknowledge that alcohol exists and that she had wild drinking times, which is something they would never allude to in those other shows. She could have this very mild swearing and stuff like that. So yeah, just setting a tone of like, if you've been following her, if you're that age, like, don't worry, this isn't for kids the way those other ones were. This is going to be a, you know, a more mature family thing. Right, that's right. She is now kind of you know, it's been put upon her that she is now a single mom. So her sister and her brother-in-law have embezzled millions in a Ponzi scheme from their company. And one is now in jail and one is on the run. And she, as the godmother and aunt of the niece and nephew, is now the guardian. She is also a local councilwoman. And we find out that her dad had been a senator was like a you know very popular senator from their state i think they're in ohio and so um she's kind of on that trajectory but she doesn't want to be like her dad because he was like a womanizer and a booze hound and stuff and yet throughout the series we get to see her like making similar mistakes and not necessarily being an asshole but definitely being like self-centered and a little bit wild and crazy now this is my big note for this show. What you just explained in about 30 seconds, the show fails to effectively communicate despite being drenched in exposition from the moment it starts. Like the whole setup of this show, the fact that these kids aren't her kids, they're her niece and nephew from this brother and sister-in-law that were involved in this scandal and what her job is and what her role is and what and who Joey is and how he relates to her, all of that is quite confusing to me, despite the fact that there's so much dialogue that's trying to weave in these facts in a way that seems nonchalant. I wonder if they wouldn't have been better off just having one of those intro sequences that says exactly what you just said to me, that just says, hey, everybody, I used to be this and my parent and my brother got arrested for this and now I have to take care of his kids and just get all the information out of the way instead of trying to organize weave it into the dialogue so that drip by drip we're figuring out who everybody is i found that aspect of it annoying <laughs> that is wow i did not have that experience at all how much have you watched this show i watched it you know sort of out of curiosity when it came on it's like we always say now you're talking about the 2010s i was grown up i wasn't you know watching abc family sitcoms but i remember throwing this on just out of curiosity but i didn't really remember the setup of it beyond 
Joey had to be her nanny, and that being a very goofy sitcom oh, premise. Right. I mean, they're definitely going for a who's the boss thing. Like, that. Yes. he even makes reference. He's like, I'm like Charles in charge here. You yes. know, he makes that joke. But so, yeah, I mean, to me, the, it, the setup for this show is is who's the boss. Joey is this Italian guy who <laughs> yeah, is it's like... who's the boss plus all these other things. Who's the boss didn't also have political scandals and <laughs> by the way, these aren't my real kids and, you know, all this other stuff. I used to be the legal consultant or I used to be the business manager for, you know, such and such hedge fund, but he turned out to be a criminal too. Like there's so much going no, into this. No, it's the same company. What do you mean? Joey uh, worked, that he for worked for her brother-in-law and he's out of work now because he was the only one in the company who didn't end up uh, being indicted under the federal investigation because he didn't know. He legit didn't know. But they do play that for a lot of fun, like throughout the series. I just I, like I'm having a hard time because I when this show was released on like Hulu or something. So in like 2015, 2016, I binged as much of it as was released. And so I missed like, I think the end of season four. So I watched it kind of all in one chunk. And loved this show, just had so much fun with their, their chemistry is great. Like, it's a really fun will they, won't they, that they do a good job of stringing out over four seasons. Yes, this is one where they have no pretensions of like, oh, a romance? Okay, I guess we could try to make that part of the story. Like, this is obviously where they're going with it from the jump. But they don't. Like, that's, you know what I mean? It's obvious where they're going with it from the jump with friends, too. But with this one, they, like, they don't even go on their first date until, like, end of season three or something. They have I mean, to take the, a while to yeah, get Yeah, they really do. And they have fun with it. And there's lots of like her dating and him dating and all. The, I mean, they're just, I find this show so charming. I really enjoyed it again when I binged it way back, like, you know, I guess, oh my God, eight years ago now. But it just, it's just is so, I'm trying to put myself back in the headspace of not really understanding the premise like you did. Cause I'm like, it's so very clear. Yeah, no, and it is clear. Like once you get it, you get it. But it is a choice to have those kids be introduced and then discover, oh wait, they're not her kids and discover, okay, she's this politician, but oh, th- this thing happened with her brother. What What's the deal with? And then Joey Lawrence, you know, speaking up in, the meeting he's you know at her town hall that's how we get introduced to him and you know not being totally clear on what his role in all of this is like all of it is a choice to sort of dole out that information and little so, by little throughout the pilot right. instead of all at once yeah that's true and that's why i wonder i wonder if we had dropped into it like we do so many shows somewhere else if you'd have been even more confused. Because at least in this one, they're making an effort to explain what's going on. Yeah, but it also wouldn't have necessarily bothered me or I would have just turned to you and said like, so what's the deal with that? Or, you know. Yeah, uh, you're expecting to be confused at like mid-series, but not in the pilot. Well, like I said, the, the tragedy of it is that there's so much dialogue devoted to exposition and yet it's still confusing. And yet I'm still kind of going like, but wait, who is he? And uh, I don't really get it. Like to me, it's, yeah, <laughs> I have it's such, a I have like such a biased reaction to you saying that right now. I'm just like, that's because you're a dude and you don't understand yeah. human relationships. <laughs> well, in any case, Which isn't true, but it just, I'm like, whatever, Jay, how can you not get that? <laughs> I mean, I caught up eventually. So the story is going to be 
Mel is is overwhelmed in general. There's a garbage strike. That's what she's dealing with work-wise. Right. Her kids are getting in trouble. Her daughter, or sorry, her niece <laughs> is uh, always getting in trouble at school and she refuses to go to the parent-teacher thing. There's just like lots of strife from all directions. Right. So the garbage strike is happening because as councilwoman, Mel has tried to increase school funding. So to do to do that, she cut garbage pickup it was like three days a week and now it's only two days a week and so people are pissed off that their trash isn't being picked up so it isn't the garbage men that are on strike it's angry dad like as taylor swift would say dads brads and chads all right so it's her neighbors not just her neighbors it's people and yeah yeah so like but it's it's very specifically like angry white men is what they keep kind of coming back to. And so they are lobbing trash bags like onto her front lawn and front doorstep. So there's all these fun gags. Like every time they go to leave, they're tripping over trash and trash keeps getting thrown at them and whatever. So that's that kind of storyline. And then you have Lennox and Ryder and Ryder's played by the kid from Love, Simon. He was like up for an Oscar recently. He's a good little actor and you watch him speaking of kid actors like he's pretty young at the beginning of this and it spans kind of like his teenage years. So by the time this series is over, he's like a grown up and he's he does a really good job. He's absent for part of it, I think, because he was filming a movie. So he kind of, his career sort of started taking off after doing this show. But so got the garbage strike. You've got Lennox, the older sister, who's um, Mel's niece. Mel used to be the cool aunt, and now she has to be like a mom-type figure, an authority figure, and that's not going over well. And Lennox is rebelling because her mom's in jail and her dad's on the run, and she just is like, meh. So she's taking out her anger at her school and at Aunt Mel and not really being her best self. And then you just got like kind of all the normal stuff of like being a grown-up woman. She, Mel's trying to go on dates, but she can't get, make time to make dates. And she's trying to feed the kids, but she doesn't cook. So what's she going to do? And oh my gosh, and garbage and all this stuff. So lots of things happening. Yeah, and Joey Lawrence plays this business guy that initially is just one of her constituents, right? To be honest, this is what confused me the most because like I said, we get introduced to him at the town hall, And so I just didn't understand like what his role was at first, but he's just a citizen with gripes that he's airing at her meeting. Yeah, he shows up to try to like put her on blast at the meeting. Like, where's your brother? Why don't you find your brother? How can you be an honest councilwoman if your brothers or, you know, your brother-in-law's on the lam or whatever? And she shuts it down with a plum. Like she does a great job. Doesn't, you know, I don't know where he is. Uh, If anybody does, please let me know because I'm raising his kids kids so like come on and she kind of shuts him down and then he comes over to her house to apologize for coming at her that way that that wasn't really what he was meaning to do he's just feeling at his wits end because and then he tells her who he is right so this is meet cute 101 right? right he's like look i you know i'm sorry i did that here's who I am. I'm a commodities trader. I was the only one who was making your brother-in-law legal money. And now I'm living out of my car and my wife has left me and my house has been repossessed and they're going to repossess my car in three days. So that's where my life is. And she has on the table um, an application going to a nanny agency so she can hire a housekeeper and a nanny to help her with all the things that are going on with the kids. 
and he sees it and he lies and says that he used to run a, a daycare or like a youth center as his volunteer project while he was at, at college. And she's like, okay, I don't really believe you, but I don't have time to look into it. So fine. You know what? You're going to make sure the kids get to school and I'm already late for this meeting. Stay here. Do the thing. I'll see yeah. you later. This is like the most sitcom-y conversation right. that has ever I'm going to leave this strange right? man with my two ki- like just adopted kids. <laughs> everything. Like just the guy walking in, beginning the conversation as, I mean, I guess he comes there in relatively good, you know, faith. He's coming to apologize, like you said. But just immediately with all of the circumstances of, oh, by the way, I have no job and no place to live. And her having these kids, like this is like... Like the Seinfeld thing with the guy getting sentenced by the judge to be his butler, you know, just the idea <laughs> that this scenario would somehow resolve itself with Joey Lawrence's character being her nanny. Just a very sitcom-y, you know, turn of events. Yes, but and she's not, she's anticipating that it'll only be for today and she's only kind of doing it so that she can get out of the house and not have to worry anymore, or at least sort of, and that she'll, you know, she pushes through the application to, you know, get more information from the nanny agency anyway. And then by the end of the day, Joe has solved a lot of the problems. He's convinced Lennox to go to this uh, meeting with the principal where she needs to apologize for calling the principal um, a word that rhymes with the principal's last name, which is Principal Lunt. Yeah. Which I was is... like, hey there, ABC family. Yeah, I feel like this was a very, like, of the time, like we were starting to flirt with the the casual use of that word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this, uh, the, the scenes with the kids, again, right out of the playbook of, I don't know, you got to imagine the first episode of Mr. Belvedere, yes. <laughs> you know, was, yes. was pretty similar. similar. The same kind of thing. Even the Malin Ackerman one, we watched where we're gonna help each kid a little bit sort of win you over one by one uh you know that that same cliche trophy wife man that was such a good show such a bummer oh anyway um so yeah so joe kind of he convinces lennox to go to school he uh gets Ryder to write his history paper that he had not written and he makes dinner and he's like vacuuming i mean he's doing you know a great job and mel gets home from a long day of work and is like holy crap like how did you do all of that stuff and then he's like oh yeah you know whatever i had brothers and But then he comes clean about not actually like having run that youth center. And she also comes clean that she, you know, was going to hire somebody else anyway. And then they just kind of shake hands and say, all right, I guess we'll give this a try. Yeah. And that's the sort of, you know, this is your classic first episode stuff. Like we're going to end on that note of, okay, here's the situation. Let's see what kind of funny stuff happens. Joey Lawrence is interestingly like... Sort of down the middle, grown up dude in this. I noticed he says one word. I couldn't even tell what he was saying, but he does his whoa thing. He said, wow. 
Okay. He said, well, and it was it was funny because he was like, wow. But it wasn't like, whoa. No. He but, does that in this show as like a joke a few times yeah, later on. He was, whatever that was, was tapping into the Blossom Joey, you know, the Joey Russo, as it were, a little bit. Yes. But besides that, you know, he looks totally different. He shaves his head now. He's got this very aggressive widow's peak. Uh, <laughs> he's, you know, still in very good shape. And he just, um, like, He's he he says funny stuff, but he's he's very much a straight man. Yes, and Mel is the zany one. Yeah, like, and I think that's fun in this, where because he has been sort of the comedic. We know him as Joey from Blossom, where he was, you know, comic relief. He was like the man. The what do they call it? You call it a himbo. Yeah, he, he was like, you know, the kind of male version of a ditz, and yeah, that was his role. But in this, he kind of. Other than the fact that his life is fully po- fallen apart, he has it together and can get shit done. Whereas Mel is like kind of only keeping things flowing on the surface. You know, she definitely is like needs the help and is a little bit of the wild card where she gets to be the one. And she said in interviews, she liked the character because it was the first time she got to be the one who caused the problems. Whereas in both Sabrina and Clarissa, she was always like solving the problems or I mean, more in Clarissa coming up with, you know, fun plans or whatever. But specifically in Sabrina, the situations would happen and she would have to fix them. That was like what she did in Sabrina. So this turns that on its head and she gets to do something different. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting to me now to just think about, you know, and we mentioned, uh, you know, the the phrase vaguely conservative, right? When describing Melissa Joan Hart's sort of public persona now, we're talking about 2010, right? So this is now a world that has The Office and 30 Rock and Arrested Development and all that to make a multi-camera sitcom about a business guy becoming the nanny to a, like, this is a, a throwback, right? This is a sort of like, not, not in a sense of being like super retro, but this is a decidedly, this isn't going to be one of those newfangled things. This is going to be more like the shows that we grew up with. Your sort of pure sitcom stuff. And you know? that's what ABC Family did and still does. Like that is, it would have been, it would have been right at home in their lineup. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because this wasn't on like a CBS or an NBC or whatever. Sure. I, this wasn't even on ABC. This was specifically on ABC Family. Yeah. And so where we should look to find sitcoms that are like the sitcoms that we like from back in the day is on those yeah. networks. And that's, there's a whole group of people who th- like they're selling that too. That is the nostalgia that never left, right? That's the like, what people watch if you live in middle America and you want to watch sitcoms that are like the sitcoms you grew up with. Yeah. Well, if you live anywhere, but yeah, I agree. And I guess I'm saying like, we're seeing her, we're seeing that process throughout the two thousands of locking into a certain niche, you know, and sort of dominating a certain corner instead of being like, Oh, everybody knows Clarissa. Now it's like a certain group of people are going to be really into this thing that she's doing. Exactly. And that's kind of the media landscape, though, right? As there's gotten more and more and more and more, I don't need to be on all of those. I can just do this one thing and become the girl of of this one thing. Yeah, exactly. 
Moving on to No Good Nick. No Good Nick, or No Good Nick, if you prefer. This is a Netflix TV series, a one-season wonder that um, aired in 2019, starring Melissa Joan Hart and Sean Astin. Speaking of a like throwbacky kind of 90s, 80s kid nostalgia, um, as the parents, they're the parents in this family, in the sitcom family, and they are, the first episode is called Catfish. And they are getting catfished by a teenage con artist, Foster Child. So her foster parents are Sensitivity from Herman's Head and Ted McGinley from every single last season of every single sitcom that you didn't like. Jefferson on Married (laughs) with Children and Richie Cunningham's brother. Right. He's the death knell. You bring him onto a sitcom and the sitcom ends, except for... Married with children, right? That was like the one that he didn't kill. So they're the foster parents. We only see them once a couple of times because she is trying to ingratiate herself to this family that she is purporting to be their long lost cousin. We find out at the very end of the episode, though, that her actual dad is still around and is in on the con somehow. And There is some connection to this family that this is not a random family that they've targeted, that they're going through this elaborate foster system ruse to get to. So lots more to come, lots more intrigue that we didn't see in the first episode. So (laughs) the existence of this show is very interesting, right? This is a bizarre sort of hybrid of new and old. Like we said, this came out on Netflix relatively recently, so it's there for anybody to watch it. If we were saying that Melissa and Joey felt like a little bit of an anachronism to be a multi-camera sitcom, this really feels like, you know, between the multi-camera style, the casting of Sean Astin and Melissa Joan Hart as the parents, this is very much like, hey, you know, part of our offerings on Netflix is, you know, we, we want to have things that appeal to everybody. So this is going to, yes, very clearly be a throwback in the way it feels in the people who are in it, but the story is going to be this serialized thing that you might see in a Better Call Saul or some sort of thing that's going to unfold and, you know, build on more and more intrigue. So, uh, yeah, I had never heard of this. It's, it's something. Yeah, it's really interesting because it feels like it's a show for tweens. It feels like a Lizzie McGuire or a, you know, big time rush, you know, not necessarily with all the like sparkly Disney stuff that those have. But that's like it kind of feels like that sort of a show. It really focuses on the kids. The main character is this teenage girl who's a con artist who is, you know, a lot of fun to watch. But the sister, the girl who plays the sister in in the show, in the family, Melissa Joan Hart's daughter, I think is really fun to watch. She's got that Tracy Flick personality. And she is a good little actress. I find her really interesting and captivating. But yeah, it was was strange to me because I was like, that you've got these two kind of bankable stars in Melissa Joan Hart and Sean Astin, and they are like the parents in a kid's sitcom. We barely see them. Yeah, they're not in it that much, but I could understand why at this point in her career, especially if you've got someone like Sean Astin also on board, and if you feel like the overall quality of the show is good, right. like it's and got that's a good budget to it, it and yes. stuff, it's going to be a legit thing, that you would go, yeah, I'll be the mom in this. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think that this is a good story. I yeah. think the reason that it doesn't catch on is is that it's got a grown up story in a teen show body. And so it doesn't have the feeling of the teen show in its storytelling enough to keep a 15-year-old watching well, it and it but it doesn't have the like look of a good show that would keep yeah. somebody who is kind of an older person who would be interested in a story like this. Here's what I would say, the crime aspect of this doesn't hold up necessarily as a serious story. I think this is meant to be the iCarly of con artists. I think this is for teenagers, and this girl is meant to be a cool character that you're going to relate to and I'm sure go on this moral journey with as she gets more attached to this family. The movie Opportunity Knocks with Dana Carvey from the 80s is a lot like this. And so I think it... I saw it as something that is definitely meant for teens and tweens uh, with this sort of twist to it. Right, that, that they have the cachet of having the these like more famous parents. Well, but I mean the twist of her being the con artist also. Oh, I see what you're saying. But see, I think that is kind of, I mean, they give it away in the first episode that this is her redemption story. That like you can see right away she's going to fall in love with this family and she's going to want to. I can. <laughs> uh, that's, that's all part of the reason why I say like younger audience or so, family audience. Right. So it Maybe this is just like a Netflix decision that we're aiming with this teen tween show. We're aiming for people. We're aiming for those kids. And if their parents see oh, yeah. that, that Sean Astin and Melissa Joan Hart are the parents, then maybe they'll stay and watch it too. Oh, 100%. I think this is straight up family program. Yeah. This is exactly the same thing when you bring your kids to a Disney movie. It's well done. But if you're an adult, of course, you're ahead of the story. Of course, you understand <laughs> where they're going with it. And it has very much that vibe. But like you said, it focuses on the, on the kids. So, you know, I don't think we need to get super into it. The main crux of a lot of the scenes is Nick, this main character, trying to convince these two siblings who are, you know, to, to different degrees skeptical of her, uh, that she really is their relative and that she's not scamming them. And, you know, it's interesting, like, I'm tempted to say across the board, the acting is just better these days than it was back in the early 90s, you know? Like, it almost just seems like the same way technology and everything has improved. Th these kids are just more, like, honed in Well, the they acting. have legit been on camera since they were born. Yeah. You know, you think about kids, a lot of people who would follow, like, a Melissa Joan Hart track today, they become YouTubers when they're, like, five or six years old just trying to get their face and their name out there. So young actors now started honing long before we ever did when we were back in our day, Jay. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. Where do you want to go with this? I mean, in terms of what Melissa is contributing to this, I think it's kind of like you said, there's, you know, just her presence and Sean Astin's presence gives it this nostalgic air of credibility and they're they're good but it's it's just not really about them it's not really about them and i think it is an interesting decision on netflix's part to try to like 
compete with Disney in a tween show genre. I think that's kind of interesting. It clearly yeah. didn't work out, and it's not something that I've seen well, them go back to. Do they have others in this vein? No, like I was saying when we watched it, I think for them to do a multi-camera sitcom at all is very rare. The only other one I can think of is the short-lived Chuck Lorre one with Kathy Bates as like a weed grower. Because in general, I think Netflix is, as a brand, new and disrupting and different. And they're not necessarily looking to go back to the old days of Jackie Gleason. And, no, you know, and if you want to watch sitcom. those old things, just, you know, binge suits like everybody else's. Yeah. But <laughs> the one thing I did want to throw in there is if this is coming out of 2019, this could be a casualty of COVID to one degree mm. or another. There's a That's lot That's true. Of I didn't think about that. That may or may not have been on the road to immense success that got disrupted by Yeah, that. no, I think you might be right because it uh, it premieres in April of 2019. It had 20 episodes. So they would have been getting, you know, gearing up to do, to film the next season, you know, as COVID hit. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting that Melissa's role in this between the two of them is she's the skeptic of Nick. She's yes. the one that doesn't want to deal with her. And it's almost not entirely skepticism as much as like, not my problemism. Yeah. Uh, she's like, uh, we, she is the one who is the breadwinner. She runs a restaurant. She's a major chef. And so she's the one bringing in the money. And she's kind of like, uh, we are like, I'm working my ass off to keep this family afloat. We don't need another mouth to feed and another child to raise. Like we're nearly done. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. And Sean Astin is played as the much more humanistic and sort of touchy feely guy and yeah. is just is more trusting, maybe naive and is sort of more easily won over. And then the two siblings have that similar, the, the genders are flipped where right. the sister is more trusting and is more easy to win over and the brother kind of remains more skeptical. The story has a lot of sort of twists and turns in terms of, you know, you meet this Nick character with the family. So at first you have no reason to doubt her, but then you meet her cohorts, like you said, the the two adults. And that's the part that to me makes it feel made for kids, that she's the ringleader. And she talks to these two people that are in their 50s as though she's Moriarty in the Sherlock Holmes <laughs> world, you know, or she's Blofeld from James Bond and they're right. like her henchmen. Well, and you know. we only find out later on at that, you know, the phone call at the very end of the episode because she has a burner phone that's a flip phone that she keeps in her back pocket that nobody else sees. So yeah, she calls this dad character. So we find out there at the very last bit of the episode that she really isn't the ringleader. Her dad has kind of set her up for all this. So we don't know what's going on. Yeah, there's all kinds of twists and turns, but you could see the general arc is going to be just like that Opportunity Knox movie and so many others like this, where she's conning this family and getting closer to them, but also, you know, coming to like them. And at the same time, she's got these co-conspirators that she's going, no, no, let's not rip them off yet because we can steal even more money if we just let me hang out with them more and <laughs> let some more time pass. And so, yeah, we can see where it's all going. That first episode ends on that note of like, okay, we're going to let this play out and give us a season or two of intrigue before we totally pull the trigger. And uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, 
you know, for what it is, I thought it was fun. Yeah, it was fun. I uh, I think it's kind of an interesting... They did a good job. Like, Netflix always does a good job at, like, whatever happens in the last minute of the episode makes you want to just keep watching yeah, the next definitely. one. It drives me crazy that they do that, but also, like, I get it. Yeah, but again, it's in terms of Melissa, like, I'm sure that they're going to give her some yes. interesting stuff to do. They mentioned the- that she's going to be auditioning for Top Chef, so I'm sure that that will be something that happens down the road. But yeah, I mean... Look, it was a it's a fun show. I think it's an interesting turn in her career choices, like you mentioned. And I think it does have a lot to do with the material. I think if I were in her shoes and I had chosen all of these types of things to do, when I get this script from Netflix, that's like kind of being a mom in a show that's like where I started, I think that's kind of cool. And I would definitely consider that. And then if I thought that the story was any good, I think I'd do it. And I think that's like in my head, I'm like thinking that that would, I, her choice makes sense to me there as like a professional. Sure. And in terms of some of the other things that we haven't talked about, you know, she was in that movie, Drive Me Crazy, which came out when we were in college. That was in that wave of teen movies, the sort of post Kevin Williamson boom in, in those kind of movies. And it's funny, I started out with, again, a little bit of a glass half empty mindset of like, uh, I guess she, she wanted to be an actor in movies and it didn't work out. But now I'm just kind of like, you know, like, look, those movies in general kind of went away for a while. I haven't watched Drive Me Crazy in years, but now I kind of want to. And it's it's cool that she has, you know, in, in the pantheon, in the, in the canon of those late 90s, early 2000s teen movies, you have that one with Melissa Joan Hart and Adrian Grenier, you know? Well, and she was in the one with Ethan Embry and uh, yeah, Jennifer Yeah, can't hardly wait. But she's just wait. a small part right. of that. Right. She has a fun little bit part in yeah. that, though, where she's like obsessed with her yearbook, you know, kind of character. Yeah. Um, getting everybody to sign it. So she, I think, did that kind of stuff during that time. I mean, she probably wasn't able to get away. She was filming Sabrina, right, at the time. And some of those teen movies got pretty raunchy, and she was on an ABC show with a contract with Archie Comics. They, She told a story on Pod Meets World when they did, when they rewatched one of her crossover episodes where she starred as Sabrina on their show, and she talked about the um, Drive Me Crazy premiere where all of the pictures she has been sobbing all day because her Maxim cover had come out. And uh, there's exactly my reaction. And Archie Comics called her parents and her management and they were like you're getting fired we're suing you and firing you because you're in lingerie and it says sabrina the witch without a stitch or whatever and she had a clause in her contract that said you couldn't appear as sabrina naked ever and so that was like let's blame the woman not the anyway they didn't have a leg to stand on obviously she didn't get fired from sabrina because she did have clothes on and she had no say over what they were going to write on the cover. So the less said about Maxim, the better, (laughs) but I just think it's cool that there's like a legit mainstream movie that came out that we all went to see in the theaters on Friday night. That was her, you know, like she has just like a lot of these comedians uh, or actors that are mostly TV or sitcom people, but you have that one movie that they did and that's kind of fun. And then we watched a couple of her guest spots, the, that 70s, show the just shoot me they're little things right they're fun little she bops in 
And I think, you know, you look down her Wikipedia, and except for maybe a year or two in the early 2000s, there's not a year where she's not doing stuff. She's always in things. And like you said, a lot of times, things that she's at the center of or directing or in some way, she's really sort of in control of like what her role is. Yeah. And so... Yeah, you know, I, I I think it's a good journey, you know, watching that first episode of Sabrina with her, her teeth adorably missing and she's, <laughs> you know, like reading the cue cards all awkwardly and everything and sort of seeing where it goes. This was another solid sort of retrospective. I yeah, think. I think so. The one that the one guest spot that I'd be really interested to watch that we haven't gotten to look at yet is her guest spot. It was kind of after Clarissa, but before Sabrina. So she was still pretty young. She had an arc or a a one episode arc on Touched by an Angel, Mm -hmm. which is, I think it was like Della Reese and that their whole thing, it was kind of like they would go and they would fix the wrongs, you know, of like sad people in the world or whatever. It was sort of like a quantum leap, but with angels kind of thing. And so she did an episode of that when she was still really young. Um, I think it would be interesting to see that because all the other guest spots and Drive Me Crazy and all the, you know, ABC TV movies and Christmas movies I've seen her in, it's all been post-Sabrina. So it would be really interesting to kind of like get back to that. I want to see her as that little kid again, that little kid actress. Yeah. And I'm sure there's stuff floating around with her before Clarissa, just random things with her as a little kid. one of those 600 commercials you mentioned (laughs) yeah exactly splashy the bathtub (laughs) all right so much for our deep dive on melissa joan hart what are we talking about next week next week we are getting a makeover we're gonna watch green acres season two episode five the ugly duckling charles in charge season one episode eight a date with enid iCarly season two episode 14 i make sam girlier and rules of engagement season six episode two bros before nodes yeah we're getting our first taste of charles with the pembrokes instead of with the powells it's a whole different universe And that's all next week. And until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to the sitcom study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The sitcom study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. 